when we are gone and forgotten, our buildings will keep on proclaiming that here have lived people who had a heart for the needs of children. Reverend Klein, 1929. Even though the buildings are gone, my son Andy and I have uncovered the long-forgotten stories of the people who lived there, worked there, and died there. They were at the same time ordinary and extraordinary, and we hope you will be inspired by the sacrifices they made. By sharing their stories, we ensure that the people who had a heart for the needs of children will be remembered. Welcome to The Homes. My name is Karen Thaliker. And I'm Andrew Newell. We're your hosts as we explore the challenges and joys of life at an institution housing orphans and old folks in rural Iowa during the year 1929. Welcome to February of 1929. The winter months could be costly for the home's operation, particularly when extreme cold hit. January of 1929 had been the coldest January since 1912, and February started at negative 12 degrees Fahrenheit. To save money and conserve fuel, the school on the hill was sometimes closed, and instead classes were held in the boys' dormitory. Similar to today, February also brought talk of the groundhog. The headline in the newspaper predicted that the groundhog would not see its shadow, and the byline said, no sunshine likely on Candlemas Day. I had never heard of Candlemas Day. What I learned is that since ancient times, February 2nd was an important day because it fell between the winter solstice and the spring equinox. Christians celebrated what they referred to as Candlemas, on this day because 40 days after the birth of Jesus, his mother Mary presented him in the temple according to Jewish law. February 2nd, 1887 was the first time they gathered on Gobbler's Knob in Punxsutawney to see if the groundhog would see his shadow. And by 1929, the tradition was so popular that the groundhog was mentioned in the Muscatine newspaper. As predicted on February 2nd, the groundhog did not see its shadow. And so an early spring with warm weather was predicted. The Holmes newsletter, The Messenger, was sent to hundreds of individuals and congregations in a dozen states. In our world of HIPAA and privacy concerns, the names of old folks and the children would have never been mentioned. This was not so in 1929. The Holmes regularly updated its readers on the names of the children and where they were from. They even sometimes added information about their reason for coming to the Holmes. Here are some examples, and we've omitted the last names of the children. Georgia, one of our girls, was compelled to submit to a tonsil operation recently and has recovered nicely. Another example of how times have changed. The child was just five days old when Mrs. Klein brought it from the hospital. On Easter Day, we baptized it, and the little one received the name of Esther. She is being tended by Mrs. Klein and Mrs. Finkenshire in the old folks' home because they have the measles in the children's home, and it was not practical to expose her. At present, Twelve of our little ones have the measles. The children call it the weasels. Even the little nine-months-old baby under the care of Miss Wittig is one of the victims. What extra work all of this demands need not be specifically mentioned here. Little Esther will leave us in a few days to be cared for by a professor and his wife. The newsletter also noted when the old folks passed away. Today, when we say someone has died, we might say they passed or passed away. We might say they're deceased. They were much more eloquent in speaking of death in the newsletter. Here's an example. Mrs. Lawson has passed on to her reward. 
During the last few weeks of her life, she suffered much and was quite helpless. She found her last earthly resting place in our cemetery. Her years were 75. Here's an example from February of 1929. At the close of the year, death came to two of the inmates of our old folks' home. Both had been ill for months, so their end relieved them of much suffering. Mr. Roberts was 84, and Mrs. Termuth reached the age of 74. Now Mr. Roberts sleeps in our little cemetery on the hill, Why Mrs. Termuth was placed beside the grave of her husband in Waupon, Wisconsin. Even though today there's a senior living campus on the site of the orphanage and old folks' home, none of the buildings that existed at the time of the Kleins are still there. What is still there is the little cemetery on the hill. You'll hear about it on occasion, but suffice it to say that it's a very peaceful place, and if I was one of the old folks who lived at the homes, I think I would have liked to have been buried there. As we read through years of newsletters, we felt like we were getting to know the old folks. We kept track of when the newsletter informed readers that they were buried there, and when we visit the little cemetery on the hill, Andy and I find their gravestones. We like them to know that they're not forgotten. In the February newsletter, Reverend Klein closed his column this way. Then it has also pleased the Lord of life and death to call to rest a valuable member of our board, our treasurer, Mr. Otto Kindler. We miss him dreadfully, for he was a dear friend to us, a friend who was always ready to help in every way. His pleasant manner made him dear to all of the young and old. They tried to voice their appreciation by placing a wreath on his grave. He is gone, but his kind deeds, helping hand, and love he had for our work will never be forgotten. Financial troubles continued in February of 1929. The requests for $1,000 donations that had been made in January resulted in one such donation coming in. Reverend Klein wrote, We have received a number of donations for our new building. Recently, we received one which made us glad. Reverend E. Mule of Thomasboro wrote us that a family of his parish, Mr. and Mrs. Martin Henricks, had given him $1,000 for our new homes for a memorial in memory of their departed daughter, Johanna. It is a beautiful way to perpetuate the memory of their departed child by making a home for many children who have no home. Her memory will always be green in the hearts of those whose little feet will walk in the room on whose door will be the name of Johanna Henricks. Reverend Klein also noted a much smaller donation, but no less of an important one. He wrote, A widow's mite came to us when Mrs. Dora Gerard, one of the large family of old folks, gave us $2 for the home for the little ones. She has nothing, but she gave of that for those who have nothing. Just now, when our treasury is empty, and we will soon be compelled to borrow money for our running expenses, we were glad when Reverend Hiltner came bringing $147 from two congregations. The phrase widow's might comes from a lesson in the Bible that appears both in the books of Luke and Mark. A widow gives two small coins in the temple treasury, When Jesus sees this, he talks about how great her gift is, because she has so little to spare. Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. This kind of sacrificial giving had been necessary during the entire history of the homes. The story of Louise Wittig perhaps best illustrates the personal sacrifices that were made for the sake of the children. Hers is the kind of sacrifice 
that we did not want to lose to the passage of time. Our need to share her story with you is one of the reasons we wanted to do this podcast. Miss Wittig was the matron of the girls' home. She was very gaunt and stern in appearance, perhaps not someone who you would think children would be naturally drawn to, but the exact opposite was true. The children loved her. Over the years, she loved and cared for hundreds of children. She rarely took time away from the homes. She refused a salary and instead wanted the money meant for her to go to the children. This is her story. Louise Wittig was born in Germany in August of 1863. When she was 10 years old, she came with her parents to Iowa, where her father was preparing for the ministry. After he became a pastor, she lived with her parents in Illinois and then Nebraska. When she was 24 years old, her parents died, and after that, she lived and worked with relatives and friends. In 1898, she responded to a call from Reverend Reinemund in Muscatine to be Mrs. Reinemund's assistant and also as an instructor for the children. She described her own health as delicate. She had some sort of a heart ailment, and because of ill health, she refused to accept payment for living and working with the children. To receive further training and to improve her English, she entered the Deaconess Mother House in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. She didn't finish her training because Mrs. Reinemund was ill. The newsletter said, once returned, she became more indispensable than ever. About this same time, the home for the aged was completed. Reverend and Mrs. Reinemund took up their residence in the new building, while Miss Wittig remained as matron of the orphan's home. This entailed great responsibility, and it was no easy task to meet the requirements of caring for these children. Nevertheless, she gave her full strength and undivided loyalty to her work. Through her years at the homes, the newsletter would often recount how children had returned to the homes for visits after they had become adults. They would come for holidays, or even just to see Miss Wittig. The girls would often come back to the homes to be married by Reverend Klein in the homes chapel. Here's an example of what Reverend Klein wrote. One of our former boys and his family came from Chicago to spend part of their vacation here. Ernest Suttinger and Brother Valentine with family came from Milwaukee to visit matron Miss Wittig. We are always glad to see our former children return for a visit, and it always affords us much satisfaction to hear them say, We appreciate what you have done for us. Our friends will also be glad to know that their gifts and prayers have helped to make it possible for these children to grow up into useful citizens. At Christmas, he would name the former orphans who had joined them for the holiday. We are always glad, he wrote, to welcome them back home and enjoy having them with us. Now adults, the children would write letters to Miss Wittig, who they called their mama, and recount how homesick they were for her. In 1929, Miss Wittig was still at her post, and still loving and caring for the children. After her death in 1933, the newsletter told of her life and her life's work. With what love and untiring energy, she prayerfully labored for those entrusted to her care. No task was too difficult, no service too menial, if it meant the welfare of her little ones. All loved and were attached to her. How could it have been otherwise? Love begets love. Truly, great things were done in her weakness. Her life in this institution has indeed been one dedicated to love, self-denial, and self-sacrifice for the children. Never did she request a reward for her services. To her, it was a privilege to be able to serve, 
but we are confident that God has given her her reward. What she has done, even the apparently insignificant things, is recorded in the book of life and in the hearts of the children. During most of her life, Miss Wittig had a cross to bear in the form of heart trouble. The year before her death, this affliction became increasingly burdensome. Other afflictions followed. On February 6, 1933, she was privileged to enter the joy of the Lord. She had attained the age of 69 years, 5 months, and 24 days. How truly blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works shall follow them. Miss Wittig left express wishes regarding her funeral service. She wanted them to be simple. In reading about her funeral, it was like reading a letter from family. In many ways, during the time period that the Kleins were at the homes, 1921 to 1941, our family now is in a unique position to fill in the details of the events because of how many of our ancestors were involved. For example, in the description of Ms. Wittig's funeral, my Grandpa Arnold, who was married to my Grandma Erna, was the liturgist. When Grandpa Arnold married Erna, he became part of the Holmes family too. And another family relative who ran a sister orphanage in Northeast Iowa was a speaker at the funeral. The details of the funeral are touching. The newsletter recounted it this way. The older children of the Holmes then sang Miss Wittig's favorite song, Take Thou My Hand, O Father. Glenn, a student at Wartburg College Clinton, one of our boys, who from earliest childhood had been under Miss Wittig's care, spoke in glowing terms of what the departed has been to him and the many other children of the homes. The services at the grave, up on the windswept hill overlooking the homes, was in charge of Pastor Jay Hafner, Muscatine, Iowa. The singing of the song, O Lamb of God, by the whole assembly, brought the service to a close. The extremely cold weather prevented many of the former children from coming for the funeral of their mother, but the casket was covered with the flowers and the memory wreaths they sent. The headline of the newsletter in March of 1933 read, Miss Wittig died. Faithful matron of our homes is called home. Here's how the editor of the newsletter recounted her life and death. Up on the windswept hill, looking down on the cluster of buildings which are the Lutheran homes of Muscatine, is a newly made grave. The friendly snow has covered the clay mound as if to wipe out the memory of the group of children who stood there sobbing out their hearts at the loss of their mother. There on that windswept hill, they laid the mortal remains of our faithful Miss Wittig to rest. There on the hill overlooking the homes which had been her home for 35 years. They laid her to rest up there because she wished it, because even in death she wished to be near her beloved homes, her home. And what could be more appropriate that she, who picked the site for the cemetery in the first place, should also wish to be at rest there after life's journey is done? Rest has come to this tired worker, rest after many days of work and worry. Now those work-hardened hands are folded in rest over the heart that has ceased. It was her heart that has always caused the trouble with Miss Wittig. It never was right, neither organic nor otherwise. A goiter of many years standing brought years of distress and pain, but it was the other heart which caused her more distress. 
After about 500 children had romped through a person's heart, it will show many a scar. Miss Wittig was not a common matron. She was more, far more. She considered herself the mother of each and every one of those little ones who had come under her care. They were her very own. And even if she had never gone down to the Valley of Death to give them life, she gave her very heart blood to keep them alive. She laughed with her little ones. She played with them. She was glad with them in their joy, and she wept with them in their grief. And she spent many, many nights in Gethsemane, resting in agony of prayer for one or the other son or daughter. For years, she would not listen to any plan to find places in private homes for the overflow of children. Could a real mother give away her children? Only when more and more little ones asked admission so that we could not satisfy all the cries would she consent to the placing of some in private homes. The editor went on to say, For 35 years, Ms. Wittig lived there by the side of the road, and in those years a good many children came and went. Some of those children made her heart glad. Others caused her much anxiety. Some of them broke her heart. There are bound to be a black sheep or two and 500 children. But Ms. Wittig never lost faith in any of them. She simply prayed all the more for them. She was sorry to see them grow up and leave for their work in life. Still, she followed their successes even after they were gone and was glad when they established homes of their own and in later days came for a visit to show their own children. Miss Wittig saw her destiny in work. Other matrons may be executives who see that others work. Ms. Wittig did the work herself. The present writer, in the 25 years he visited the homes as one of the directors, often remonstrated with her. When or if she ever slept remains a secret. She was the last one to bed, often up most of the night looking after some little one, and then morning saw her busy in the kitchen preparing breakfast. Many years ago, the doctor told her that she did not get sufficient sleep, but she confessed that she could not sleep. Little Frankie was a restless sleeper, and she must see that he did not become uncovered during the night. John had an indication of temperature when he went to bed. Could you blame a mother that at two in the morning she must see after him? Did not scripture ask if a mother could forget her child? And shall you blame her that with pride she pointed to her record of never losing a single child by death in all these years? True, one lad was killed by an automobile out on the road, but that was wholly beyond her control. Unselfish, she went on from day to day. In the 35 years, she never drew a salary. We voted her salaries at various times, but she refused them. We made her presents of money in place of a salary, but she always spent the money for the home. A mother does not get paid for taking care of her children, she once said to a committee, urging her to accept a salary. She did not get rich in this world's goods, but she was rich in friends. She learned to gather riches where neither rust nor moths may destroy them. Untiring, she went on from year to year. Vacations were not for her. A few times she did leave on short visits, but always the care of her little ones drew her back. So she went on from day to day until her tired heart would no longer stand the strain. Medical aid demanded rest, but rest she would not. We tried to make life easier for her in many ways. We established a central kitchen. We established power laundry. 
we gave her a more comfortable suite of rooms in the new building. But Miss Wittig found new outlets for her energy. She long objected to the indicated operation which her medical advisors deemed necessary. When she finally submitted to the operation, it was too late. For a while, new energy seemed to revive her body, but the poison of long years had undermined her system beyond repair. So silently, she went home, to her home on high. As a good executive, she has not left her many children without a mother's care. She efficiently trained others to take over her work and carry on now that she is gone. They are able successors because in them she has installed the love for the little ones. From her, they learned unselfishness. She taught them to be untiring in their work. And best of all, she showed these helpers the fountain of all the strength and patience needed in the work of being a mother to scores of children. She has let them into the secret of her own strength, Calvary. The outstretched arms on Calvary, open to all those who mourn and are heavily laden, has ever been her symbol of unselfish work. And so she kept her arms open to all the needs of the little ones, even when they were grown. Their tears she wiped away, their bruised fingers, and sometimes hearts she mended. The editor concluded, So Miss Wittig has gone from our homes to her new home. But I know that over there, she has already gathered other children around herself on the Golden Meadow. And because there she will need not worry about any finances, she will be, and is, happy. Her tired body rests in the cemetery above the place where she labored, so long and faithfully, to await the call of the resurrection trump. The snow-covered mound is all that remains on earth of the tireless worker of the Lord. But her soul shall go marching on, her memory will not be forgotten. And may her example enthuse others to help carry on the work where her tired hands laid it down. May others come forward to make her dreams and hopes come true, help pay the debts, and carry the financial burdens. Above all, I know that when she came home she was greeted with that beautiful word of the Savior. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. And what greater praise is there in heaven or earth? When Andy and I passed through the gate of the little cemetery on the hill, we saw her tombstone right away. It says, Orphan's Mother. I'm not sure what Ms. Wittig would think about her story being told all these years later after her death. I have to believe that if she thought it could inspire us to be kind to children and to sacrifice for their well-being, she would think it was a good thing. We are grateful for the opportunity to share her story with you. If you want to see photographs of Miss Wittig, visit our Instagram page at Life at the Homes. You'll also see the little cemetery on the hill where the orphan's mother is resting. And if I can convince Andy, I'm hoping he'll record Miss Wittig's favorite song, the one sung at the funeral, Take Thou My Hand, O Father. And we'll add that on the Instagram page as well. Thanks for listening about life in February. The next month brings the inauguration of a new United States president, one who was born only about 30 miles away in West Branch. It also brings increasingly urgent pleas for money to fund their new building. We hope you join us for our next episode when we explore life at the homes in March of 1929.
This podcast was researched and hosted by Andrew Newell and Karen Thaliger, and sound was edited by Robert Newell. Special thanks to Wartburg College in Waverly, Iowa, for the use of their podcast studio. If you have additional stories and information about the Lutheran homes of Muscatine from 1921 through 1941, please send us a direct message on our Instagram at Life at the Homes.